Blog Talk Radio. Again, we continue this um, uh, morning show with uh, our esteemed guest, Dr. Chris Saltpaul, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, as a matter of fact, a master acupuncturist. Uh, Dr. Chris Saltpaul received his Bachelor's of Science degree in Material Science Engineering from Rutgers University and his Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine from Baxter University and his master's in acupuncture from the New York College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. He has a lifelong dedication to healing and has worked with patients suffering from many different health conditions such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, HIV, AIDS, and cancer. And um, Dr. Sopar has also helped uh, found a, uh, a mentoring program uh, for adolescents struggling to become conscious and positive adults. He's also worked for several years in the foster care system with troubled youth and in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries. He has worked for six years as the director of nutrition at the Invite Health Center, opening up his practice in New York City in 2005. Dr. Saul Paul has worked extensively in helping individuals manage their blood pressure, blood sugar, with diet, nutrition, and exercise. Dr. Saul Paul also has joined a team of alternative health practitioners at the Peace Health Center in Brooklyn to help combat the growing health crises in the inner city and particularly within the African-American community. He has also completed training in naturopathic cardiology, and he has conducted detoxification programs, managed sliding scale acupuncture clinics, and has used acupuncture to help numerous individuals with musculoskeletal pain as, and as a result, traumatic injury, attrition, or some inflammatory process. Dr. Saltpour has received acupuncture on ecology training from the renowned Sloan Kittering Cancer Center. And at this time, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Saltpour to our show. Hello, Dr. Saltpour. How are you? Hi, Baba. It's uh, wonderful to be on with you again. Oh, thank you, and it's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. And I must also indicate that my lovely wife, uh, Dr. Dora Gray, is with us this morning, and she will be uh, joining us uh, uh, shortly in, in um, involving your, your, your information and 
And without any further ado, I'd like to just uh, go forward from uh, where we left off last week. We were talking about the Ebola crisis, and we covered some things, quite a few uh, uh, areas of that particular crisis is happening in our motherland of Africa. And I know that this show is dedicated to a discussion on the uh, essence of having a healthy heart and various types of heart diseases. Uh, would you like to continue from where we left off uh, last week, Dr. Sopor, and then delve into the heart area? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so uh, I know that you had mentioned uh, that um, there's various ways in which one can enhance one's immune system. And I'd just like to, for those who didn't listen last week, for you to just go over that uh, somewhat, not briefly, but in terms of a, a synopsis of that, and then from there we delve into the cardiovascular disease area. Sure. Um, so um, one of them, one of the ways that you can enhance your immune system uh, is that you could have a diet that's conducive to uh, strengthening your immune system. So basically you want to eat lots of uh, plant foods, right, greens, uh, reds, um plant food, meaning like fruits and vegetables, obviously, but lots of colorful fruits and vegetables. Uh, they help to stimulate your immune system. Um, in addition, you want to eliminate simple sugars. So obviously the things that you find in candies, um, refined carbohydrates like cupcakes and pastries and things like that. Um, and so that would be the very basics of um the dietary interventions to help to strengthen your immune system. Obviously, um, getting good hydration, um, exercising, and some of the things that I mentioned last week, um, I believe um, I concluded and I gave some uh, nutritional recommendations for um, supplements that, that uh, people can take for strengthening the immune system. And in general, what you want to look for uh, is vitamin D um, and with vitamin D, you definitely want to get your vitamin D levels checked so that if you're low, which uh, uh, African-Americans tend to be because we don't um, metabolize or make as much vitamin D when we're exposed to the sun when compared to lighter complexion folks, um, our vitamin D levels tend to be low. And so we want, to, we want to make sure that our vitamin D levels are within range. If not, you want to bring that into range by taking 5,000 IUs a day or whatever the appropriate dose is to get you in in uh, the right range. You can do vitamin C, and I would definitely say you can do really high doses of vitamin C, uh, like two to 3,000 milligrams a day, or take it to bowel tolerance, that is to when your bowels get kind of loose. Um, you can do vitamin A. Um, so you got to be careful with vitamin A, and like Dora asked last week, about vitamin A and the controversy around vitamin A, and it is uh, toxic, but I believe that every uh, thing you put in your body at different levels could be toxic, even water. And so you just got to make sure that um, you're looking out for the signs of toxicity with the vitamin A. And uh, I would do like 30,000 IUs um, uh, two to three times a day. There's also been a study on... Um, the use or the potential benefit of melatonin, 20 milligrams a day taken at night um, for folks who have different viral infections, but particularly um, they thought that it would it would help folks who have Ebola. 
So those are just some different strategies that you can use to help with your immune system. But in general, just the basic things, getting good sleep, good hygiene, uh, getting a really good diet that's mostly plant-based, eliminating simple sugars and refined sugars and refined foods, um, trying to um, decrease as much stress in your life as you can. Um, so just those simple things are, are the um, primary intervention. Great. Uh, speaking about water, it's been recommended by some schools of thought that you drink at least eight glasses, and then there's another uh, just recent uh, um, uh, information about drinking half your weight in ounces. And is that something that you find to be concurrent with uh, or congruent with your particular uh, protocol of drinking water? Yeah, yeah. Typically what I tell people is to drink half your weight in ounces. So if you weigh 150 pounds, 75 ounces a day, um, eight, you know, eight glasses, you know, that's 64 ounces. So around there is what would be right anyway. And so I think obviously, you know, you can give or take a few ounces, but you definitely want to uh, make an effort to drink um, drink a good amount of water a day. Mm-hmm. But and obviously guess, not over-consume it. So like I said before, um, you know, um, people sometimes drink distilled water, and drinking lots and lots of distilled water has been shown to um, create an imbalance of electrolytes in your body that may mm-hmm. make your heart race or may give you heart palpitations or worse. And so um, that's also the other thing. You know, you just you can't over-consume anything, even water. Mm-hmm. And, and people, I, I think that there's a, uh, a feeling that people who drink a lot of liquid, whether it be alcohol-based uh, content, as it were, or juices and so forth, get the impression that, you know, they're uh, hydrating their system. And right, indeed, right. they're not. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I, I mean, I, I do think that uh, hydration uh, is is most thoroughly accomplished by drinking just straight water. And um, water that hopefully has some um, good mineral mineral content to it. So you may want to drink like a um, a purified water or some kind of spring water, but not a distilled water. Um, uh, you know, a mineral water or something like that would probably be the best. Uh, and then, you know, of course, some people say, well, you know, I can't, I just can't drink water. I can't. I gotta have some kind of taste to it. And I I respect that. I hear that a lot of times in my practice. And so what I tell them is, okay, well, you know, you may want to just drink some dilute green tea or some di- dilute type of tea. I would stay away from uh, recommending juices, even dilute ones, um, because it's just lots and lots of sugar you're adding into your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so definitely I think the top-rung intervention for hydration would be uh, water um, with some minerals to it. And you can even add, like, mineral packets to your water and things like that. And then from there you can you can do some teas or some coconut water, the not the not sweetened ones, um, and so on. Great. Um, all right. So this comes to mind now uh, regarding um, uh, cardiovascular disease. Could you share with the listening audience how you came about, uh, how this became of interest to you in terms of the area of cardiovascular disease? Yeah. So. Um, Part of my motivation for being in naturopathic medicine and uh, acupuncture is um, my mom had begun to change uh, the way we eat, uh, the way we ate when we were younger, like when I was uh, 10, 11, 12. 
um, because she was hospitalized um, with a heart condition. And uh, we were very frightened um, that we were going to lose her. Um, and so that was part of my motivation. It was my early training into kind of like um, the importance of having a good diet and exercising. And my mom at that time, um, you know, a single mom, raising four kids on her own, lots of stress. She was smoking a little bit. She used to have a beer every once in a while. And um, that just, and she's a little overweight, and just kind of like that, you know, the typical life that you see most people have puts you at risk for having heart disease. And so what she did was when she was hospitalized, she got out, she drastically changed her diet, she quit smoking, and she did all of these things to really uh, improve her health. And she brought us along and raised us that way. And that was my first impression on how important that was. And so that's kind of like why I've always had an interest in this is because I feel like that's part of my genetics and it's something I'm always kind of like looking for. Um, I see a lot of patients this way. You know, when you deal with the African-American community, um, you know, I'm an African-American person. And, um, you know, um, African-American clients are drawn to me. I am drawn to service that community. And that's just typically what you see. You know, this is something that our community struggles with in large number in addition to diabetes. And so it's what I've become good at. And so it it uh, uh, it was an interest primarily, but it's also just something that um, because of who I am, because of my background, I, I managed to see a lot of these types of clients. Um, and so, you know, just like as you mentioned earlier, I have had some additional training in cardiovascular disease and have pursued other CEUs, uh, continuing education units, because I, uh, you know, have this interest and I'm always seeing it, so I'm always trying to keep myself up to date on what's the latest in, in uh, cardiovascular health interventions and and um, how to how to kind of like help and support my patients the best. Very interesting. At this point, I'd like to uh, uh, acknowledge that my wife has just joined us in the studio. And uh, hi, how are you doing, hon? I'm doing great. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dora. Yes. So um, we look forward to her sharing some thoughts perhaps later on during the show. And um, what brings to mind also, you mentioned diabetes. Could you share with the listening audience how diabetes and heart disease uh, are connected in terms of uh, uh, one impacting the other? Right. So uh, diabetes is a risk factor for heart disease, and uh, I believe vice versa. So, um, But f- first, diabetes is a risk factor for heart disease, and the mechanism there is when a person has diabetes, they're not controlling their blood sugar readily. And so, um, you know, you have food. What normally supposed to happen is that your blood sugar goes up, and your body has the ability to bring your blood sugar back down by secreting insulin, and then you kind of like um, move the blood sugar to move the sugar out of your blood into your into your body. People who are diabetic lose this ability um, either from birth and type one or type two. Um, they become a gradually uh, unable to do that, and so that process is. Um, broken down, and so you tend to kind of like keep a lot of sugar floating around in your bloodstream when you're diabetic. And what that does is um, it it hardens your arteries. And to explain that a little bit more, there's a process that happens in your in your arteries where your body is moving 
fats in and out of different areas in your body. And you have this a form of cholesterol that is a bad cholesterol that moves um, fats, different fats like uh, triglycerides, cholesterol, um, lipoproteins, phospholipids, um, in and out of your arteries. And um, the bad fats, the LDLs, the bad type of, of uh, molecules, LDLs, they deposit these fats in your arteries. And what happens when the sugar hits the fat in your arteries is that they cause uh, an inflammatory process to happen where the fats are rancidifying and hardening in your arteries. And so that, over long term, um, creates hardened arteries, which um, increases your blood pressure. It's like if you think of um, having a, a clog in um, your um, plumbing system, there's more pressure in the plumbing system, right, if you, if you can't get all of the water through. And it's the same kind of mechanism that happens that creates hypertension. Um, and so that process kind of leads to hypertension, um, which leads to further heart disease along the way. You may have some, uh, you know, cardiomyopathy, or you may kind of um, have some um, growth of the heart muscle or some breakdown of the heart um, from that or form plaques in your arteries because of this hardening process that may fall off or break off or cause heart attacks and strokes. And so that's the process. So blood sugar is part of that. And um, and what what we look at, the word that they used to throw around in the, the industry is acute glycation or advanced glycation end product. And glycation is the process that happens when sugar meets these fats and what happens after that. And um, that whole process um, is the atherosclerotic process, and it's very much related to your blood sugar. It's also related to other things, though. And so if you're smoking, it causes the same um, thing to happen to the fats that are shuttled in and out of your arteries um, because it's like oxidizing, like um, rust on a car. It's oxidizing and breaking down these fats and hardening them and making them stick more to your arteries. So um, diet, obviously, if you eat lots of sugar, if you eat lots of um, bad fats, if you do, if you have lots of um, um, chemicals in your environment that are causing this to happen, if you're smoking, um, uh, if you're under a lot of stress, if you're secreting a lot of cortisol, all of these things lend to the atherosclerotic process, and definitely that's the relationship with um, having high blood blood sugar or diabetes with this with this whole thing. So, I imagine that. Um Exercise would be a key element in terms of dealing with the the blood uh, flow and and its uh, the content. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of oxidiz- oxidizing the blood. Absolutely, and there's a number of things that happen there. Just like you said, oxidizing the blood, um, bringing blood in and out, bringing um, cells um, HDLs in that that are actually doing the opposite, that are moving. Um, these these um, waste products out of your arteries, um, moving in cells that clean up the the area, um, helping to um, dilate your blood vessels and keep them real healthy and flexible. Uh, the thing with exercises, though, um, you know, uh, is an interesting study that came out, and they studied um, people who exercise, for instance, as if you're like if you're jogging and you're running. Uh, 
and you choose to jog out on the West Side Highway um, during rush hour and you're breathing in uh, a lot of the fumes, mm-hmm. they say that if you exercise in that circumstance, that negates the benefits that you get from exercise. And so right. that's because all the bad air that you're breathing in and how it's oxidizing your arteries. And so that's the part that I think that most people don't know, that when you exercise, if you're going to exercise, you've got to kind of exercise in a good environment. So it's just not ac- actually just what you're doing with your exercise, it's where you exercise too. Um, that's important with exercise to mention. Um, but definitely exercise is a very uh, important strategy that I use in my practice to help people you know, uh, get themselves back and kind of reverse a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because, as you know, I'm a runner. My wife as well, uh, she's uh, a, a walker. A walker. <laughs> but she's, she runs also. And, but, a little bit. Yeah. But we we uh, actually date one another, and we have to get back on track with it, no pun intended, uh, where we go to our local park. And, and walk around the circumference, which is about 3.5 miles. And, um, you know, I've been training in this park for the last 35 years, and I didn't realize until a few years ago the, the, the positive ramifications of me running and training in the park with other, you know, um, friends of mine in the running community, that um, when you're in the park, you have trees, of course, and and the trees are, as they say in the Amazon, as an example, the Amazon is the lungs of the earth because of the, the density of, of, of the Amazon forest with trees. And, of course, in any, any environment in the inner city, such as here in New York City, uh, if you're in the park, we're in Brooklyn, so we go to Prospect Park, um, you're getting the benefits of positive eons and 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 the oxygen uh, that the trees are giving off are are more concentrated. So uh, I'm happy that you did touch upon the fact that uh, it, it can be detrimental to run in, in high in an area that has high traffic. Right, or, or it just cancels out the benefits that you are you're trying to get with with uh, to your heart at least. I mean. You know, because when you're exercising, you're also strengthening your muscles, and there's lots of other things that go on. But when they're mm-hmm. looking at your heart, and when they're looking at, like your your question was, when you're when you're looking at the benefits of exercise to your arteries. You know, um, when you're exercising in an environment that is polluted, it cancels out and negates a lot of benefits that you would get um, uh, to your heart otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's just like doing nothing. Yes. Yes. That's very interesting. You know, I, I was looking at your your site um, uh, not a couple of days, well, actually yesterday, and I happened to notice that you're uh, a martial artist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I would love to do more of it. Um, so what, what I did was when I was in medical school, uh, there was a person who uh, who is. Um, probably one of the leading people, and he's a very young guy, too. He's one of the leading people in Hapkido, which is a Korean martial art, mm-hmm. and um, the founder of which is uh, this, this particular branch of Hapkido is uh, this martial artist named Jihan Jae, who is actually in um, one of Bruce Lee's films, you know, Seven Levels of Death or something like that, where Bruce Lee goes up and he's fighting all of these different people, and in the end, he has to fight Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> it's just interesting because, you know... Uh, this guy was actually one of the guys who uh, kind of trained with, with Bruce Lee, the guy who, who started this martial art. But anyway, his disciple was my teacher. 
he's a younger guy, but younger than me anyway. But he was very, very uh, proficient and, and uh, good at it. And uh, and um, and so every morning, um, uh, five five a.m. to seven p.m. seven a.m. or six a.m. to seven thirty a.m. we'd get together outside uh, or uh, in the gym or in the dojo, and we train uh, five days a week while I was in medical school. And so it was really, really wonderful. A very good time in my life. And uh, I would love to have the opportunity to do more martial arts. Um, I'm a little busy right now, but I'm looking to get into something again. Got to no, protect I, your joints when you're older, though. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, my, my wife and I both, we are martial artists as well. And um, we've been looking forward to, you know, starting to work out again. And and uh, I recommend it to everyone that... Uh, that you at least, if not martial arts, that you get into some type of exercise that um, uh, is able to stimulate your your total body, as it were. Uh, we even do the sun salutation into yoga, and and you know I guess just doing all of these things from the walking to the running to martial arts to yoga, you're assisting your body in so many ways. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the running yeah. community, we have this adage that the body keeps score. And and I can I'm a living testament to that. My wife as well. That uh, that is so true. Yeah, I uh, right now what I've been doing for the past few years. I mean, I've always uh, weight trained and ran, so I do a lot of that. But I'm also now getting more into stretching and uh, yoga and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I I, I exercise pretty uh, vigorously. Like um, uh, you know, I'm part of your risk assessment for cardiovascular disease, not just that you exercise, but how vigorous your exercise is. And so um, if you exercise vigorously, you know, if you kind of get your heart rate going and you're sweating, um, it's much more beneficial than if you're just kind of like uh, trolling, you know, just strolling along. Mm-hmm. And so I always like to talk about that when I talk to people about um, their blood sugar and their and their heart disease because it is it is exercise is so, so beneficial. And, you know, doing all of these different types of exercises helps to mix up your muscle memory, right? And so that if you do the same thing over and over again, you know, it's not as hard. But if you if you throw something different, if you throw your body a curve, if you, uh, you know, if you're just doing something that's new to your body, you have to work harder. And so um, it makes you work a little harder. And so it increases mm-hmm. your heart rate more. And so it's better that way. So it's always variability, which is what's wonderful about martial arts. It's continuously variable. It's you're always just you know, moving your body in different ways and, and doing things like that. And so it's one of the reasons why I always uh, recommend that. In addition to yoga, yoga is kind of like that way too, you know, lots of variability there. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, Dora would like to ask a question, uh, and let me just bring her on. Hi. Yeah, hi. So, so Chris, um, in talking about hydrogen peroxide therapy, so, as you know, there's a practice where you use food-grade hydrogen peroxide, and it's purported to be able to basically cure any type of disease because you're adding the oxygen that's lost back into your blood. And I know there's a formula of starting with three drops of the food-grade hydrogen peroxide to an eight-ounce glass of water 
um, three times a day, and then you work up to 28 drops per day, and then you come back down. And that's the um, that's the therapy. And I just want to know what's your opinion about that, you know, as far as, you know, is it safe, is it, is it okay for people to do on their own, or is that something that should be under the orders of a doctor? Right. That's a great question. Um, I, I've read... Uh, 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 quite a bit about this. See, there's a person named Majid Ali um, who is, you know, all over the radio, and he's got a practice here in Manhattan and, uh, and I believe in Jersey, who probably is the person that talks about that the most, kind of like this use of hydrogen peroxide. And he uses it a lot to cure, like, many, many different things. And so um, he's a very bright doctor. I think that he is he's uh, very, very experienced. And so... I would have to say the science behind it and the studies behind it really aren't there. But if his clinical experience speaks to that, um, and that in theory what it's supposed to do is help with free radicals and um, uh, oxidating your body and getting providing your body with good oxygen, but also kind of helping to clean up um, uh, any damaging kind of particles out of your body. In theory, it's supposed to work. Um, but I guess, the, the, you know, when they run studies on these things, um, they don't see them really benefiting. They don't see much benefit from it in the studies, right? But in, mm-hmm. his, in, in his clinical practice, I don't do it much in my clinical practice, but in his clinical practice, he says, wow, you know, it's it's so beneficial. So what I would definitely say is work with someone, if you're going to do it, work with someone who's um, used it in their clinical practice so they can help you along the way. Um, I don't think that it's dangerous. I think that it's fairly safe, especially when you're comparing it to some of the other things we put in our body. Um, But I would definitely say that you do want to at least, um, you know, get as much information as you can about it before doing it or work with a clinician who who uses it in their practice readily. I don't, but um, I know that some people um, who I respect in this community definitely use it as one of their therapies. Uh, often in their practices, and uh, again, the, the person who I who I know does that a lot is Majid Ali. Awesome! Thank you so much. Yeah, that's that's great to know, uh, and I'm so happy to hear that he's here in uh, New York City. So yeah, he's yeah, he, he's all, he's all over the very 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 bright person. He's got a very interesting <laughs> website, and as soon as you go on that, you know, I think the for one of the first things that's going to pop up. Are uh, you know his his whole peroxide uh, thing? Great, great. All right. So the next question I have is um, something that uh, I think would be of a great interest to those who are listening, and um, that is, what do you, uh, in what way are you different actually from uh, a regular MD in terms of how you treat your patients? Yeah. Um, I think it's a great question. In general, I would say working with a naturopath, you're working with someone who believes your health takes commitment, you know, and work to achieve, you know, whereas I believe in MD, um, they treat mostly pathology, and they're trying to, trying to help you with the symptom. We're trying to help you more um, in, the, in the longer run kind of um, way to help to get you back to health so that you don't have to be on any medications or drugs. And so in my practice, I often focus on changing lifestyles like diet and exercise, reducing stress, and treating the issues um, a person has with, like, natural methods or methods that are less harmful um, 
There are some side effects to most natural methods, but they're less harmful and less toxic. Um, so methods like homeopathy, acupuncture, herbs, nutrients, vitamins and minerals are always used. But, it, you know, um, when we're talking about cardiology or heart stuff specifically, you know, I've recently gotten a chance to, to be in a company of some cardiologists, and I got to know some cardiologists. And, you know, I've always th- thought about me- medical doctors in a certain way, being a naturopath and being someone in this community. And, um, you know, I know the, the the goods and bads, and I know they're good medical doctors, bad medical doctors, but the people I've recently met, I believe that they all mean well. They, they sounded like they really cared. And like I mentioned last week, I, I believe that they were all of those things, and they were very skilled and well-trained and, I think that they have this um, overarching fear, though, that um, if they don't treat people, that um, they're going to have a heart attack and they're going to be held accountable, and that's not good. That's a daily reality for them. It's that liability, you know. Um, you know, if I if I uh, I know that this person is at risk giving these medications, I know aren't the best aren't the best um, things in the world, and they are toxic. But if I don't if I don't give it to them. And if they have a heart attack, I'm losing my license. You know, that's a daily reality. And so um, because they belong to a profession that is so strictly regulated, um, they are bound to practice by, like, a specific standard. And so when you're a medical doctor, you practice by a standard. And so if you have a patient that presents to you in a certain way, you have to treat them a certain way. And, um, And so they determine these standards based upon research and studies. And so... What they're doing is well studied. I just don't think that it's complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether or not the standard works for them or for a patient, um, it's it's what you're going to get because that's the tools that they have, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for instance, you know, if a person, if a, if, a, if a medical doctor sees a person and they have high blood pressure, they have to treat them with with uh, particular medications. If they uh, have high cholesterol, they got to treat them with statins. If they have um, blood sugar issues, they got to treat them with metformin and insulin or things like that. They may not be the safest ways to, to treat people, but it's basically all they have. And they're mm-hmm. certainly not what we would consider long-term strategies. Like I, we, Dora spoke about this last week very eloquently about, you know, how when she first was diagnosed and that the medication saved her life. And she can speak more to this. The medication saved her life. But she was determined not to to be on this stuff for the rest of her life. It's not a long-term strategy for a number of reasons, but one of them is is that they are toxic and taking over a long time. And you're not really uh, getting to the core issue. You're not really solving the problem, you know, which is is how we practice. We try to um, acknowledge the the benefit of these uh, medications and these pharmaceutical medications. I don't knock medications to my patients because I believe that for some of my patients, they are saving their lives. But I present my patients with a long-term strategy, especially when it comes to, like, diabetes and heart disease. There are long-term strategies. These are lifestyle kind of modification diseases or lifestyle out-of-whack diseases, you know, that if you Mm -hmm. kind of just do some basic things, you can get back to health, you know. You take some nutrients in addition to your blood pressure-lowering medications, your diabetes medications, your... um, cholesterol-lowering medications, uh, you know, it can help more. And so, um, we, you know, I present a strategy, a long-term strategy that's going to help people to get off their medications eventually and um, to get off all the supplements and to just be healthy. And that's what 
the goal is, and I feel like that's not what the usually the goal is uh in uh with medical doctors in that uh the goal is usually just to keep me- people medicated so that they don't have some kind of um uh event that's going to end their life, which I think is a good goal in the moment but for for most for for people it's not a it's not a good long term strategy <laughs> you know what that comes to mind is um doctors such as dr Oz. Who's a? I think he's a heart surgeon. Right, uh, he's a cardiologist. Yeah, he's a cardiologist, and he seems to be, you know, one of the few doctors, or it seems that there may be a trend where traditional medical doctors are now embracing um, uh, alternative medicine protocol. And uh, it's interesting the fact that he's so successful with his show on, on television that um, millions of people are now becoming aware of the uh, the benefits of connecting with someone like yourself, a doctor such as you, who is a, a naturopathic. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? that um, I think that you're right. I think that he's 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 um, opened up a lot of people's eyes to, um, pers- you know, other alternative kind of healing modalities. I mean, he even talks about, like, you know, not just supplements, because people get on him about, like, um, pushing supplements, and I think that that could be dangerous. Um, but, you know, he also talks about just conditions and how you can treat them, and he kind of opens people up to, like, different ways of approaching these things. Um, so I think that the issue I've had with him is that I think that he he pushes supplements too much. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, um, on the other hand, he is really giving, it's kind of like an awakening. I think that um, he's receiving a lot of flack from it from his own community. Mm-hmm. Um, from medical doctors, you know, they always kind of beat him up, and they got him on, uh, um, you know, Congress and up in up in the, uh, the Senate, and senators are like, you know, um, berating him in front of in front of Congress and stuff like this, you know, and and, um, and he's taking that and still going back and doing the show the other day because I believe what he thinks he's doing is right, and I think that um, what he is doing is right, um, that it's really helping people. I think. Um, but you know, um, I think that he does get into pushing the supplements a little bit too much for me. Um, so th- those are my thoughts on that. And without becoming political, the the reason why he's being hit upon and and um, and the hill by the senators and Congress because of the bottom line, the pharmaceutical industry is a, a multi-billion-dollar industry. And of course, these politicians, some of them depend on the pharmaceutical community to give donations towards their particular agenda, whether it be running for election or uh, just sustaining their particular uh, power within their communities. That that's a hundred percent right. I, I would always, I also have to add, is kind of like, uh, you know, um, the pharmaceutical industry before had a monopoly on how. Um, or they want to have a monopoly. I don't think they've ever had a monopoly on how people were getting treated because I think that people are always looking for alternatives to to, to, to drugs, right? And so when I say that, I say that now I think that these alternatives are making more and more money, and um, they see this as competition. So I think that you're, you're 100% right in that um, there is this kind of like bottom line approach um, and that there's something nefarious about that, right? And there's something kind of mm-hmm. like not right about that. But mm-hmm. I think on the other hand, um, 
the supplement industry is doing the same thing. And we have to kind of step back and take a look at that too. And that ah. they're concerned with their bottom line. They're just not in the, they're not in this business just to help people. They're in the business to make money. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that part of their issue with him is that, you know, he's going to throw out the Western medical stuff and talk about how bad it is where he may be getting kickbacks from, from the uh, from the supplement companies, he says he doesn't, but a lot of people say he does, and that's the that's the issue. And so, um, you know, I think we have to look at that, and I look at that a lot as a, as a practitioner, as someone practicing this. Is you know, a lot of times you go to these nat- naturopaths, and you go you go in, and you pay an exorbitant price for your um, for your first office call, four or five hundred dollars. Some of them charge you, charge you. Then you get a bag of supplements for another $500, and then you have to re-up on those supplements every month for $500. That's a lot of money, and people are making a lot of money off of that. And so definitely there's monetary interests both sides. And so, you know, us in the alternative community, now that there is money out there, there's billions and billions of dollars worth of money out there in the alternative world, we have to kind of take a look at ourselves, um, too, and how we practice and um are we putting you know our financial interests um um in dealing supplements and treating people with supplements first or are are we just kind of really there for the patients and um you know um all of us have to run businesses too and balancing all of that um i think becomes a struggle when you're you know when you're doing this and so um it's one of the things i look at all of the time and you know i uh, you know i i sell supplements, I mark them up, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's just what you do, you know, it, it takes time for you to kind of pick supplements out, it takes time for you to kind of um, get them, you know, shipped to a person and make sure that they got the right dose and everything else, and you take time, and so you're adding that to your overhead, right, mm-hmm. you're adding that to your bottom line, it's, I think it's all about money, and this is a big a fight about money. The supplement industry, I think a lot of times with Dr. Oz versus the pharmaceutical industry, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the pharmaceutical industry has a lot more at stake there, and they have a lot more power, and they have a lot more control, and they're a lot more toxic, yes. Um, but the supplement industry, we like to, they like to make their money too, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, what comes to mind is the, the adage, less is more, but uh, that's something I like to, you know, uh, Stick a pen in for a moment, uh, Dora. Do you have a question and and um, a few questions actually? Would you oh, like to I share? have billions of questions, <laughs> but the one that I like <laughs> the one that I'd like to ask right now, though, Chris, um, Chris concerns fingernails. Believe it or not, fingernails. Mm-hmm. Now, I was reading oh some time ago. I was reading about how physicians can determine your health by examining your fingernails. And then in particular, a couple of a couple of points that I remembered is that if you have ridges in your nails, if if the ridges are horizontal, that might not necessarily mean anything except that you're just getting older. If the ridges are vertical, that can indicate that there might be a major health condition that just hasn't manifested yet, but it shows up in the health of your nails. So can you comment on that? I actually have vertical ridges and, you know, yeah. if there's, if there's so, a supplement or something I can use or right. food and so, uh, sometimes, to help get rid of that, that. 
And so back in the day, before people were running, like, a lot of blood tests and a medicine was more hands-on, you know, like medicine now, you know, medical doctors and doctors really don't do much physical exam now. Um, and so back in the day where people were really into diagnosing and doing this stuff, these are all things that we would look at, like your nails. We would look at the color of your your uh, lips. We would look at your eyes. Um, we'd look at your tongue. We'd look at your hair. We look at the way you walk, um, your smell. I mean, all of these things gave us signs to what um, conditions people were having. You know, the shape of your ear. They say that people have, like, fat earlobes with, like, lines through their earlobes. That's a sign that they may have congestive heart failure. The signs of the ridges on your hand, they say they're more like nutritional deficiencies, so like silica. Um, Also, I've heard that that's indicative of... uh, Dysbiosis, gut dysbiosis of some sort, and which means that you have a bacteria could have a bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine or large intestine. Um, but specifically, the nutrient that comes to mind when I when I when I hear about that is iron. And so sometimes people say, well, if you have those vertical ridges, is iron deficiency. But other but other mineral or nutrient deficiencies, they sometimes say that that looks like. But I, I think that the the idea there is that. Um, before we got to this um, place now where we're kind of using um, blood tests and um, imaging techniques to figure everything out, that doctors didn't have those ways. And it's kind of like you you think about how Chinese medicine people um, look at your tongue and they feel your pulse. Medical doctors used to have certain things that they looked at too, and, and the nails were one of them. That's interesting. Years ago... Oh, I have to share this. Years ago, I went to a Chinese doctor. I think it was on Canal Street. Yes. And uh, I went because one of my friends had gone and said that she was diagnosed with a heart murmur, and what the doctor did was he just sat um, feeling her pulse for quite some time, and then he gave her a diagnosis. So I was like, wow, that's so interesting. You know, I'm going to check it out. You know, and at that time, I didn't think anything was wrong with me, but I just wanted to experience that. And what the doctor did was he he took my pulse. I was sitting there for maybe a good 20 minutes. He was taking my pulse for a good 20 minutes, and he um, he alternated the pulse from my left hand to my right hand. And then he said to me that I had a hormone imbalance. And he didn't get, he didn't speak English very well, and he didn't go into a very um, lengthy conversation about what that meant, but he recommended uh, some herbal tea that, you know, I just had to go home and, and steep these herbs in water and drink it. And, and I did it, and at that time I was feeling well, and I didn't think nothing of it. I'm like, oh, this is fine. And it wasn't a very expensive experience. I think it cost about $100, including the office visit and this you know, large amount of packages of tea that he gave me. And now in retrospect, Chris, um, I read somewhere that diabetes is a hormone deficiency and I had never looked at it that way before. And that just came back to me. So at that time, this guy apparently, he might not have said, oh, I was probably pre-diabetic at that time because it was so long ago, but um, it was about maybe 15 years ago or something. So I was probably pre-diabetic, that, that, and he saw that, but he wasn't able to label it. 
See, the, the, this is the exact problem where Western medicine um, fails in that um, you are diagnosed with something when you have it. And so there's usually stages before you get something, right? Even with, like, rheumatoid arthritis, I mean, most conditions, there's things that happen way before that are telltale signs. And the diagnostic criteria that we use are for disease states, right? And so any time that we have something, okay, your hypertension is over, you know, if your hypertension is over 140 and you read it twice, you have hypertension. If your diabetes is over 130, 120, you're now diabetic. But what happens before that? You know, and so you just wait, wait, wait. You get your blood work until some, until one day you're in this range, and then now they start treating you, which is completely wrong. It's the wrong approach. What the other techniques do, what like a pulse reading does, and what like a lot of the work I do in my practice is kind of like getting it before it comes to that place, mm-hmm. gets to that place. And, and it should be that way. It's yeah. I mean, it, it was this way. I mean, you know, the reason why. Um, you know, they're looking at your tongue and feeling your pulses. The system's 5,000 years old, you know. They didn't have blood work and, and you know, ranges and, and um, you know, um, what, what what range or value you have to be in to get a disease. They didn't have all of that. It was like, okay, we're just checking to see how your body is functioning in the moment. And these are these are like instantaneous feedback from your body, signs from your body that we can get in that moment. So that is so, so, so important because in that moment we can tell you, okay, it feels like you got some spleen sheet deficiency. And if you have long-term spleen sheet deficiency, what we know is that, you know, that that could lead to diabetes. That could lead to um, gastrointestinal issues. That can lead to um, autoimmune diseases. But if we catch your spleen sheet deficiency in a moment we use some herbs and things like that to help manage that, then you're not going to progress to those stages. If we put you on a good diet that's going to support your spleen, then we can. Um, then you're not going to progress to that. And so that's a very, very important point, Dora, and I'm so happy that you brought that up because I think that, you know, that's where alternative medicine comes in, right? And that's why it's good to kind of think about things like, you know, my fingernails, and it's good to kind of understand, you know, if you have a big spot in your eye, there could be something wrong, something up with your liver, and it's good to have someone listen to your pulses or feel your pulses or look at your tongue or listen to your heart, you know, or something like that. All of those things are great. And don't wait for don't wait for your numbers to get in some range before you start doing something, you know. Preventative, you know. Um, Preventative, and that, absolutely. Well, that should take us to acupuncture because acupuncture is also preventative. Absolutely. It's the reading, the reading, the feeling, the pulses. It's just like, you know, it, it's almost like... Um, before you get it, it's in the moment, right? What, 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 um, in that moment, and um, you know, and you know, you can get your blood work done, and they don't really care what happens to you until you reach a range, right? They may see your number slipping up, but oh, you're fine until you get into this range. But no, this is a acupuncture is a complete system. It's a system that is about prevention. It's a, a system that's about, you know. Um, you know, detecting disharmonies, right, and detecting uh, imbalances, and those imbalances present over a long time create pathology. And so, if we f- if we look at those imbalances and if we understand them and we know about them and if we treat them, then you're not going to start developing pathologies. Absolutely, that's a very important uh, point. Yeah, talking about balance, uh, I've heard a lot about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and 
and uh, the disagreement over the importance of cholesterol in determining your risk of heart attack and stroke. Uh, Chris, could you talk to us about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really uh, kind of confusing point to p- to people, and um, it's a really, really important point. And so, um, structurally, um, what we know about cholesterol uh, is that it has a very specific type of structure and a function in the body, and that it's used to help make some very important things like um, uh, hormones and um, cell membranes and skin. And so it's a very important fact, so we need it. Um, When they talk about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, it's kind of like – a misspeak because what they're actually talking about are HDLs, which are considered good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, LDLs. So one stands for high-density lipoproteins and the other stands for low-density lipoproteins. They're actually not even cholesterol. So they say they're good cholesterol, they say they're bad cholesterol, but they're not even cholesterol, right? Um, What they are are molecules that carry cholesterol and other fats from different parts of your body. The LDLs, are what's called bad cholesterol, and they're the ones that I was talking about before. They kind of um, take your fats and they bring them to your arteries and drop them off in your arteries and drop them off in places that could potentially cause damage. Whereas the HDLs, high-density lipoproteins, are the ones that move the fats out. And so they're actually molecules that hold fats and store fats, and they transport them to other places in your body. They... uh, transport fats and cholesterol and phospholipids to other parts of your body. So they're kind of like cholesterol transport molecules when they talk about HDLs and LDLs. So they're not actually cholesterol. And so that's kind of like a misspeak. And so I think that what tends to happen is is that people talk about, well, my cholesterol is high. i got to get on my statin. And um, the medical industry kind of was thinking that way, too, for a very long time. And so they used to see high total cholesterol, and they would think about, well, just bring, your, bring the person's cholesterol down, which wasn't a very effective strategy because 50% of the people who have heart attacks have normal cholesterol. So why take a, you know, that's like anything can do that, you know. That's like, you know, drinking water, you know. 50, it, it, doesn't really make, it doesn't really make sense, so they can't really say that it prevented anything, treating cholesterol, right? And mm-hmm. so 50% of the people with high cholesterol have heart attacks, though, on the other hand. And so um, what they begin to realize is that there's lots of other things that are um, important. And so, like, the LDLs and the HDLs are really important. So what the strategy is now to reduce LDLs, those bad type of transport molecules that's kind of like moving stuff around. And so, like I was alluding to before, what happens when an LDL um, deposits cholesterol into your arteries is that under bad circumstances, like if you're running out on a West Side Highway and you're breathing in car fumes, or if you're smoking, or if you've got lots of toxins in your environment, or if you've got high blood sugar, that cholesterol that's going to be deposited in your arteries, or that fat that's going to be deposited in your arteries, it's going to be oxidized. So it's not even the fact that the cholesterol is bad. What's what's bad is what happens to the cholesterol if there are bad things, bad conditions in your body. And so... Um, you know, I hope that clears it up for you. It's it's kind of like, um, yeah, the, the good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. People talk about that a lot because it's easy to kind of hang on to, but it's really not actually about cholesterol. What it's about, it's about the inflammation that happens 
um, due to like the bad things that are going on in your body's environment in the outside world that's affecting uh, what's happening in your arteries, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're looking at heart disease, that's what you really got to understand, that it's just not about cholesterol. It's not about just taking a statin to lower your cholesterol, and you're fine. Uh, it's about doing all of those things that help to uh, reduce your risk from having a heart attack or stroke. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. You know, the, the, the door is always asking questions which uh, give me the aha moment and uh, needs to say this uh, today's show, uh, the questions that she put forward were very um, very interesting and and very much needed to be answered. And um, we're talking about, I didn't realize when you were mentioning about the HDL and, and uh, LDLs that um, indeed environment is so um, important in terms of how one becomes subjected to this negative uh, aspect of of good or bad bad cholesterol. And, and here in New York City, there was a law recently passed a few years ago that one should, is not allowed to smoke smoke cigarettes in public places, such as bars and restaurants and so forth. And I know that uh, Dora and I, a couple of times, we would be walking in the street, and there may be a person smoking a cigarette, and she would say, it should be a law about someone not being able to smoke in, even in the street. If That's it right. Because we're getting uh, the secondhand uh, smoke inhalation uh, from that particular uh, source. What is your take on that, Dr. Sofor? Well, I mean, you sure are. Secondhand smoke is um, very damaging to your body and to your heart. And so whether or not we legislate that, I don't, I don't know if you can do that, but I certainly think that, that that is a beef with me. I have that beef, too. I don't like being around people like blowing smoke in my face. No way. Mm-hmm. Um and so I get mad at them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, I, I have a law to do that. I know that um, people are already feeling too controlled by their government, and so I, I you know, um, I, I think that cigarettes should be banned altogether, uh, in my opinion, because you know, um, there's no medical, there's no benefit from them. They're just they cause cancer. It's just they've got a huge financial lobby behind them that allows them to still exist. I mean, what is the benefit of a cigarette? There is none. Mm-hmm. Um, it just causes you death. You know, they got this awful commercial on TV with this woman who's talking about trying to talk to her grandson, and she's like, you know, had lung cancer. Half of her face has been uh, surgeried off, and she talks like a computer. Mm-hmm. And and she said, well, I, because I was smoking. Yeah, that's what smoking does to you. So why why allow it, why allow it to be sold? You know. And so I, I think that that's, that that kind of uh, is a larger conversation. But um, absolutely, I'm I'm uh, I'm a very against smoking. Um, well, Chris, you didn't you didn't know this about me, but I stopped smoking cigarettes in March of 1990. Wow. And I had been smoking for 16 years. Wow. Yeah. And the reason I stopped at that, well, actually, the, I'll start with the reason I started. The reason I started was I was following the cool kids in school. Sure. And it was simply that, no other reason. And I stopped because at one point I realized that I had actually become addicted to cigarettes. 
And, you know, as you know, you don't know you're addicted to something until you don't have it. So I would always have cigarettes, so it never occurred to me I'm addicted. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not addicted. Oh, that's crazy. And I had, I remember one winter, I had the flu. I was really sick. It was about 3 in the morning, and I wanted a cigarette. And I actually got dressed. I was living alone, so I had nobody to tell me I was crazy or to stop me. So I was, you know, because I was living alone. And I actually got dressed and went across the street to the all-night grocery store and bought cigarettes. And in that process, I started telling myself, you're crazy. You're an idiot. You know, and, but I still went and got my cigarettes, though. And um, I think it was like a couple of years after that that I quit. And I said, let me stop this thing before the doctor tells me I need to stop. So that was my impetus for stopping. That's very interesting. I always uh, uh, smile when I hear that story, uh, Dora. Yeah, I was an idiot. You know, it's just that it's simple. Idiot. Call it like it is, you know? Well, you know, Chris, with, with my age group, I'm 70 years of age, and I know that when I was a, a youngster um, in TV commercials, cigarette commercials were common. Beer commercials were common. Because they were sexy. Yes. We, we were socialized by things that were unhealthy for us. Mm-hmm. Now, not just talking about food, as it were, but just actually cigarettes was considered to be glamorous. Yeah. You know, you even had to cry out loud. Uh, I can remember Everett R. Merle, uh, one, one of the um, commentators, uh, news, a news anchorman, and he would interview people on his show, and he always invariably had a cigarette. You know, the entertainers, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know, they did shows on television with always having a cigarette in hand and sometimes a drink, as it were. And the cigarettes would be and, in a cigarette holder because yes. that was sexy. And you had the Marlboro commercial, the guy on the on the horse, you know, being in a Marlboro man and, and camels, you know, and you're not a man if you can't smoke a camel. So, and then, of course, they came in with the, um, the, the what do you call it, the... Um, Cigarettes that had the filters, and then right. uh, and then they downgraded it supposedly with those cigarettes that um, contained. I'm forgetting. I'm having a little brain freeze right here. But uh, you know menthol. they. No, Mike, menthol. Menthol. <laughs> <laughs> so and then of course those of us in my community as well, like yourself, I'm an African American, and. Um, I, I knew that we were duped in believing that you had to embrace this rites of passage, not just getting a driver's license, but also couldn't wait until you became of age that you could smoke a cigarette. Yeah. So it's just an interesting thing in terms of just from the socialization and dealing with the, the chronological age that we are. And I know in the African community, it's always been a custom that the elders were the ones that were looked upon to pass on the knowledge that they gain from their life's journey so that the younger generation can have an easier journey or have at least the tools to be able to manage uh, their journey of growth and to be able to fulfill their purpose. So we're at a, I think, at a crossroads right now where those in my age group, you know, we are now transitioning, as it were, and leaving this earthly plane and hopefully with younger um, um, brothers and sisters like yourself who are health practitioners, that we can um, assuage the 
the uh, the the direction, as it were, uh, you know, and to dealing with higher self awareness and and also uh, optimizing our health practices. As elders, I believe that we cannot afford to be afraid to tell the truth. Absolutely. We cannot afford to be afraid to speak out. Like, you know, I personally don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm Mm -hmm. going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell people, you know, the children are obese because of all these sweet drinks and cake and junk that their parents are feeding them. The parents need to hear that, be angry at me if you wish, Mm -hmm. but think about changing the diet that you give to your children so that they won't end up, you know, 15 years old needing insulin for diabetes. You know, as as elders, we have to, we just have to grab that ball and not be afraid to speak out. Absolutely. You know, we even have the young, young girls and women, you know, who feel that by smoking cigarettes that that will um, lessen their, their their cravings for food. What is your take on that, Doc? I can okay. tell you because it works. As, the, as when I was young and I smoked, you really don't feel the need. It's, it's probably do. It's probably killing cells in you or something that you know you don't really crave food that much. And that's the reason why when you stop smoking cigarettes, many people, if not most people start putting on weight because that's exactly what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I started putting on a little bit of weight, you know, mm-hmm. each each year that I stopped smoking cigarettes. I started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, many people revert to smoking again. So it's just all around. And I can't speak from a scientific standpoint, mm-hmm. but from an experiential standpoint, that truly is what happens. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Yeah, Cole, it's, it's the nicotine and some yeah, it's the nicotine and some of the other chemicals that are in cigarettes that cut back on that um, that uh, area in your brain that is about hunger and craving. It kind of uh, impacts that area, and it makes you lose um, your hunger. Your, your, I guess they're called your satiety centers, the areas in your brain that um, regulate whether or not you're hungry. And the chemicals that you're getting, nicotine especially, kind of... Um, work at that level and so definitely i mean it cuts back on your cravings i guess that's i guess some people think that that's a good thing um and i think that that's why people do do it mm-hmm. but um you know um and well some people do it but um you know absolutely that happens hmm. well we're running down towards the wire of the show at the end of the show and uh, i just have a few more questions but Perhaps I can just ask maybe one more, and then we can wind up and continue next week if if, uh, if possible. Sure. Um, how do you determine, Chris, uh, as a naturopathic doctor, how do you determine the risk of heart attack or stroke? Well, that's a really, really important question. I, I um, you know, um, Whenever I have patients that I see who um, have some heart disease, um, this is something, a conversation that we always have. And so basically um, what I do in my practice is I have them look at a risk risk calculator. And so there's actually online calculators that calculate your risk of having heart attack and stroke. And so the one I generally recommend that people look at is uh, mayoclinic.org. And so it's just uh, you just type in your browser your web browser and your computer, www.mayo, 
clinic, C-L-I-N-I-C.org. And you go and just click on their uh, online uh, cardiovascular risk calculator. And what's it, what it's going to do is ask you questions about your risk. And so the things that um, drive up your risk for a heart attack or stroke or your age, your smoking, whether or not you smoke, we talked a lot about smoking today, your family history, so whether or not you have uh, any people who have had heart attacks or stroke in your family, your height and your weight, obviously, if you are obese, you're at more risk for a heart attack or stroke. If you've had a past cardiovascular event, so if you had a past heart attack or stroke, you're more at risk for having one. Your level of exercise, um, and so um, that's another one, and I talked about your level of exercise, and so if you are exercising strenuously for, um, I think, 75 hours uh, or, or 75 minutes a week, then it puts you at a lower risk than if you're just exercising at a moderate pace for 75 minutes a week. Uh, if you have hypertension, if you have diabetes, um, and what you eat, obviously. So uh, if you're eating red meat, that increases your risk of heart attack or stroke. But if you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, and if you have more than five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, um, you um, have decreased risk. And smoking, let me get back to that one again. I think that um, what they, what I think that the risk calculator asks you, have you smoked more than 100 cigarettes over your over your entire life? That's how sensitive uh-huh. people are to smoking, right? And so if you smoke 100 cigarettes, you're increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke, just like that. So mm. I believe it starts at one. But typically, you know, people smoke 100 cigarettes in a week, some people. You know, some people mm-hmm. smoke 100 cigarettes in a month. You know, mm-hmm. and just from smoking, them, and, 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 you know, 100 cigarettes, you have a vastly increased risk of heart attack or stroke, 100. And so I know people who smoke for years, you know, and so imagine the risk that they put on themselves from that. And that doesn't go away unless if you do a lot of healing around, you know, your lungs and your heart. But also in my practice, what I do is I like to look at um, other things than just cholesterol. Like I believe medical doctors and most conventional medical doctors, when they're talking about your risk of heart attack and stroke, they may kind of look at your cholesterol and look at how you're clotting your blood and may do some kind of uh, calcium scan. What I recommend and is that I uh, tell all of my clients, if I can't run, if I can't get the test run for them, I tell them to tell their cardiologist, look, I want a better assessment of my risk because I have all of these other risk factors, um, like my family. Like, I've smoked before, and my, my dad had a heart attack, and I'm overweight. Like, what is my real risk here? And what's going on in a moment inside of my body? And so there are things that you can look at that can tell you that. And one of the things I like to tell people is that request from your medical doctor that they run um, a few things. Number one, a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. And so what this is is going to show you the level of inflammation that's happening in your body. And so that's very important. And as we alluded to before, um, it's not just about your cholesterol. It's not just about the LDL. It's about the inflammation that's happening when there's bad things in your environment that's impacting those fats in your arteries that are that's causing inflammation. You can measure that, and you can take nutri- nutrients and um, medications that help you to lower your inflammation in your arteries. That's really, really important. So, again, one of them I tell people to look at is high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. Uh, fibrinogen is another. It's another inflammatory kind of um, uh, um a value that you can look at that would help to determine risk. Um, another one is um, 
your genetic risk of having a heart attack or stroke. And so this um, indicator is called lipoprotein A, LPA. And I always tell people to tell their doctors to to look at that too because if you're at high genetic risk, you know, um, you you know that if you're, you know, you obviously know that you're at more risk, so you would just cut back on your, it would be motivation to kind of cut back on your risky behavior. So if you're not eating right, things like that. There's also ways that people claim that you can lower your genetic risk. And some people recommend doing CoQ10 at 100 milligrams, 120 milligrams twice a day. There was a study on that to help to lower your genetic risk or your LPA. Some people mention niacin. Uh, None of it is guaranteed or founded. There's no definitive studies on it. But there are people who I know in the business who have done things, taking supplements and nutrients to help to lower their genetic risk. Uh, another thing that we look at is oxidized LDL. So we talked about those um, particles that are bringing those bad cholesterol, as we call them, that aren't actually cholesterol, that brings fats and cholesterol into your arteries and just leaves them there. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that um, they can be oxidized, and um, that's when they start to really, really cause a lot of damage, in addition to just oxidizing the um the cholesterol on your arteries. And so you can actually look at that and you can lower your uh, your uh, um, oxidized LDLs. You can lower the oxidation and the inflammation that's happening in your arteries by doing antioxidants like pycnogenol is a good one or uh, mm-hmm. green tea may help you um, with that or curcumin. Um, niacin is always a good one too. And so, like, those are the types of things that I would look at in helping people determine their heart attack risk or stroke. There's also, like, imaging techniques that you can use. One of them is called, uh, um, you can request this from your medical doctor, and there's some people who do it here in the city. Uh, it's a carotid intermedial thickness, CIMT. And so what that does, it measures the, um, the thickness of the plaque buildup in your arteries. And so it's an ultrasound that does that. And, um, you know, it's a very inexpensive test. I think for some folks it costs like $120, and I think some insurances will pay for it, but you rec- you can request that. And it can give you a um, uh, a good picture of the, uh, the calcification that's actually happening in your carotid arteries. Ask for that if you feel like you've got this risk. And you also want to ask for Another technique, it's called an endopat test, and it's uh, PAT stands for peripheral artery uh, tomometry, and what that means is that they measure your peripheral arteries for plaque buildup or whether or not um, the flow of blood through your peripheral arteries, like the arteries that are in your fingertips, for instance. You know, they can tell that you've got uh, cardiovascular disease um, and you're at risk for heart attack or stroke with having a lot of cardiovascular disease, they can tell by just kind of using this test to assess the flow through your um, the arteries in your fingers. And so this is another test that you can have that can kind of give you an indication of um, whether or not how far along you're um, in the process of having a heart disease or, you know, um, your risk of having a heart attack and stroke. And, um, you know, I do a lot of this type of work in my practice. And so, um, you know, if any of your people listening audience have um, any questions about that, they can feel free to call me or contact me.
Great. I'm happy you mentioned that. Uh, could you tell the listening audience where do you practice and and also do you make house calls? calls I do. Your- I do make house calls. Um, uh, I practice at um, the in the West Village. The address is two three zero West Thirteenth Street. My office is Suite B. That's between 7th and Greenwich, so it's on the red line or the blue line. You just get off that 14th Street and walk around the corner, so I'm right there across the street from Interval Yoga. My number is 917-837-6722. And, um, I, and again, I do house calls also. And what is your fee, and do you have a sliding scale? Yeah, I do offer sliding scale, um, and that depends on the person's, obviously the person's kind of uh, income, which they would kind of, uh, determine if they need help with that. But typically, my first office call fee is 200. Um, follow-ups are, are 90, and that's for naturopathic medicine. For uh, acupuncture, um, again, sliding scale. Um, but typically, the first office call fee is 120. Follow-ups are 100. Um, but I offer sliding scale for that also. Um, yeah. And I also wanted to just say, you know, I do free consultation sometimes, so 15-minute free consultation. So if any of your listening audience wants a free consultation and we can talk about, you know, your risk for heart attack or stroke, um, and if you want to see if you want to, you know, just get the feel for me and work work with me, you're welcome to just give me a call and schedule a free consultation also. That will be 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Well, again, needless to say, uh, to say the least, we had a, a, a great time speaking with you. I thank you so much for sharing uh, your knowledge and, and and wisdom, and we feel uh, very uh, fortunate to have you as a guest, as always, and we definitely look forward to uh, uh, you uh, speaking with us next week, uh, sharing with us your knowledge. We have a, a, a guest in the chat room, uh, but unfortunately uh, we don't have the time, and we can perhaps address this next week, and that question was um, can you talk about the importance of vitamin D3 and B12 in your diet? Um, so, uh, men, let's um, hopefully you can tune in next week and we can address uh, that question and any others that you may have. And, um, of course, you can always call in uh, live at 516-590-0140. Again, that's 516-590-0140. And uh, Dr. Saul did you share your, your website with us? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, www.drsaltpaw.com. So it's D-R-S-A-L-T-P-A-W.com. Great, great. And um, also, you can visit me at my website, which is uh, uh, that's www.drumsofchange.com. Dot com, and you can uh, email me and join our mailing list. Uh, my initial email uh, is babawesleygray at gmail.com. That's B-A-B-A-W-E-S-L-E-Y-G-R-A-Y at gmail.com. So, uh, Chris, Dr. Sawpaw? Yes. Again, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really uh, excited about uh, you coming on board again with us and the information that you shared, the plethora of information um, 
that I'm sure the listening audience is going to find very beneficial. Dora and I definitely have benefited from it. So uh, I thank you again, and, and my well wishes to you and your family. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure being on, and I look forward to uh, being on again next week. Great. So meanwhile, have an awesome uh, weekend, a blessed weekend, and uh, again, we shall connect uh, within uh, the seven days from hence. Have a blessed Absolutely. one. You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, again, we give thanks, as always, towards the end of our show to all the listeners in the, in the chat room and, of course, uh, to our guest, Dr. Trish Sawpaw, and uh, my dear wife, my lovely wife, Dr. Dora Gray. Uh, I thank her so much for the input that she has contributed to Grassroots Holistic Talk Radio. In closing... I'd just like to share a prayer towards the Most High and in honoring uh, whatever way we worship the Most High and to give homage to our ancestors. We give this morning and this day, this weekend to you, and may our minds stay centered on the things of spirit and goodness. May we not be tempted to stray from love. And as we begin this weekend and to the next week, we open to receive you and please enter where you already abide. May our minds and hearts be pure and true, and may we not deviate from the things of goodness. May we see the love and innocence in all mankind behind the mask we all wear and the illusions of this worldly plane. We surrender to you our doings this day, and we ask only that they serve you and the healing of the world. And may we bring your love and goodness with us to give unto others wherever we go. Assalamu alaikum. Hotep, Namaste, all my relations, peace and love to everyone, until we meet again.